Superman Forever Radio, Episode 111, Spotlight on Mort Weisinger, Part 1. Up in the sky! Look! It's a plane! It's a plane! It's Superman! Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. People believe tall buildings at a single bound. The incident of Shipton is now the man of steel. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Superman Forever Radio Podcast. This is part one of a special spotlight episode spotlighting Mort Weisinger. This is a rather long episode, so I'm going to suspend my usual chit-chat in the opening. I know, I know you love my little chit-chat in the beginning, but this time I think I'm going to uh, do everybody a favor and keep it to a bare minimum. Because I do really want to get right into this. And in fact, this is going to be a two-part episode spotlighting the life and times of Mort Weisinger. Now, doing my research in this, um, it's it's quite detailed, actually. Mort Weisinger had quite an incredible life. Born in 1915, died in 1978. And for 30 of those short 63 years, he was an editor at DC Comics. But before that, did many other things, including one of the first science fiction fan magazines and getting writers such as Ray Bradbury to come on board and write for his fan magazine. And then later, other science fiction, famous science fiction writers would come into the comics and write stories, as they would say, for lunch money <laughs> to uh, pay some bills, get some food. While they were writing their novels and other things, they would use pseudonyms and write some great science fiction stories for Superman. One of those guys was Edmund Hamilton, who wrote under his own name. And we can thank Julie Schwartz and Mort Weisinger for that. Good friends from the beginning, early on. But today we feature Mort Weisinger. Now, before I get into the main body of this particular episode. I want to thank Gord Tolpin for turning me on to uh, a link that I could not find. I did some as much research as I could find. And uh, when I mentioned on Facebook that I was doing a spotlight on Mort Weisinger, Gord sent me a link to, of all places, the University of Wyoming. Now, I'll put the link in the show notes because it gives great detail, the most detail I've seen anywhere of the life and times of Mort Weisinger, including his writings, his letters, family, just an incredible treasury of information about Mort Weisinger, including details and such things as the 1001 things you can get for free. <laughs> yes, Mort Weisinger wrote that book and so many other things, because I think at his heart, uh, from everything now that I've read and a couple of the interviews you're going to hear in this episode and the next, I think at his heart, he was a writer and a creative person. You will hear stories about Mort Weisinger and you'll get different opinions of him depending on who you ask about him. Some of the people that worked for and with Mort found him to be quite a taskmaster in the nicest terms. <laughs> But uh, we'll get into all of that as the next two episodes progress. But I wanted to thank Gord for that link to the University of Wyoming information. And 
urge everyone to go to the supermanforever.com, supermanforever.com, and the show notes for this episode, episode 111, there'll be a link to the University of Wyoming information about Mort Weisinger. And again, so much great detail there. So thank you, Gord, for that. So what's on today's episode? What are we starting with? What's part one about? Well, as I said, for the for 30 years, Mort Weisinger was the editor at DC Comics, specifically for the super titles, the Superman books, Superman, Action Comics, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, etc. But more than just that, as an editor at DC Comics, he was responsible, although not totally credited, for many characters that popped up during his tenure as editor, particularly in the Golden Age and in the Early Age. Over the course of the next couple of episodes, I think you'll get to know a little more about the man and his work. Today's episode will be featuring my interview, and I I don't want to call it an interview because it's not really an interview. I'm not an interviewer, but it's my conversation that I had with Dr. Henry Weisinger, the son of Mort Weisinger. Now, Hank Weisinger has a PhD in psychology and is a writer and has written many, many articles for magazines and, and several books. His newest and most recent book on the New York Times bestseller list is Performing Under Pressure. And I hope we can have Dr. Weisinger back on at some point. And even though it's not Superman related or Mort Weisinger related, I'd like to hear more about that book. That's an interesting title. And so many of us have to do just that, perform under pressure. And not just because we're on a microphone or in front of a camera or something, but in our daily lives. So I really want to get back and talk to him. Now, this interview that you're about to hear, and it's not really, again, an interview. It's a conversation. And we went down many places and many avenues. And I just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and learned so much about both Mort Weisinger and uh, his relationship with his family and son and people he worked with, people who worked for him, and the creative spark that was Mort Weisinger. So I urge you to click on the link, go to the webpage, supermanforever.com, click on the link to the University of Wyoming page, because it's well broken down in great detail about pretty much everything. And that's not the stuff I'm really going to cover here. So I really encourage if you want more information in great detail, and look up some of the things that Mort Weisinger was responsible for outside of the Superman world, and even in the Superman world. Some people may not know that he was the story editor for the Adventures of Superman TV show starring George Reeves, which is why you'll see comics of that time period, stories that appeared in the comics, also showed up in that TV show. Very hands-on editor, and we'll get into all of that and my conversation with Dr. Henry Weisinger right now. Dr. Weisinger. Call me Hank. Thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate this. Well, it is my pleasure. Before we get into to talking about your dad, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I posted a picture on my Facebook page or something, a story of George Reeves of some kind. And you made a comment on that. And I purposely didn't follow up with your comment then because I knew we were going to have this conversation for the show. And this is what I wanted to start off with. You met George Reeves. And uh, as a kid, I assume, 
tell us this little story before we get into some, and I know it'll, it has to do somewhat with your dad. I did. Yeah. Every, every year my father would make a trip to California, uh, to do the Superman TV shows. I think there were about 120 of the, of them, you know, George Reeves Mm -hmm. and my father's name, as story editor is on about 106. The last 54 were filmed in color at his uh, suggestion because he anticipated a television, you know, color television, uh, they would look good on TV. His costume of blue and red would, would look good. So anyway, we stayed at a hotel that is no longer in existence. That was in Westwood, California. And he would take me to the, um, studio to see the uh, filming. And that is where, and I remember, the uh, I have to honestly say I did not see him in a Superman costume. That would actually take hours to put on. Yeah. Um, but saw him in the you know his Clark Kent clothes, doing the same scene over and over with Perry White. So then uh, my father introduced me to him and my sister, and he picked me up and he threw me in the air and caught me, and it was thrilling. Oh. I still re- I still remember I still remember it. And uh, he was just really, uh, he was really a nice guy. And I'll bet he just seemed huge to you at the time. Yeah, well, I I mean, I was in, I I don't remember the exact year he died, but it must have been in... 59. Maybe uh, 59. Yeah, 59. So um, I was, what, uh, 11 years old. So I must have been maybe like fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And I remember the headline on the newspaper, my father coming home. And then, of course, his joke became he didn't die. He went back to Krypton. <laughs> and that was uh, and that was it. That's yeah, that was a real uh, thrill. And, and of course, met Noel Neal mm-hmm. and uh, J- Jimmy Olsen and, you know, and Perry White and Spectre Henderson. So, um, you know, that was, those were incredible, um, that's incredible. memories. I still that's have incredible. them. They're still vivid in my mind. I'll bet. I met, uh, Noel Neal in 71 or 72 at a tiny, tiny, tiny little, uh, they were trying to start comic convention here in Richmond and she and, uh, one other TV star that I don't remember at the time, uh, was came here and I got to meet her and talk to her for about 15 minutes. And I'm not an autograph collector. I've got a few, a couple of star Trek, but Noel Neal is one of my little prized possession because, um, when she asked me what my name was, I said instinctively, I was trying, I was in college. I was trying to be, you know, an adult at that point. So I'm Bob Fisher or Robert Fisher. But when she asked me my name, I instinctively said, Bobby Fisher, and she kind of laughed and and uh, signed, uh, "Hi, Bobby, with love, Noel Lois Lane." Neal. Yeah, sweet lady. Yeah, sweet cause she was on a lecture circuit for a while. Yes, and uh, uh, you know, people loved to listen to her, and she had some fun stories, and just a sweet, sweet lady. Um, but thank you for that. I, I, I like George Reeves stories because I think most people our age. That's really how they got into Superman, I think. First, maybe with the TV show, then in the comics. Uh, I've told my listeners before, that's how it started with me, was the TV show. And then one summer, I was at my cousin's, uh, I guess I was about four. And uh, I said, hey, it's time for Superman. And he's, they didn't get Superman there in Manio, North Carolina. 
but he took me out to the barn and there was a trunk of old comic books and right on top was Superman number 43 from 1946. And that was my first Superman comic book. And from that point on, I was hooked. Yes. I still have that same comic. Uh, it's, uh, it's got, still got its cover. It's a little, you know, it's beat up, but it's there. It's mine. It's the first comic I ever held in my hand as a Superman comic. And 1946, guess who the uh, editor was? <laughs> so uh, I think it's exciting that the first Superman story I read was written by Jerry Siegel, drawn by Joe Schuster. Editor was Mort Weisinger. And wow. that to me is just one of those things that you don't know. I didn't know until I was in high school who Kurt Swan was. Because they're in the early comics, you didn't get a lot of the credits. There weren't credits there. Uh, I think the first time I remember seeing an actual story by uh, was maybe a Green Lantern or an Atom comic in the early 60s with Gardner Fox, his name. And uh, I started to realize, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think when you're younger, you're also not paying to those attention to details. No. Just like when I watch, I watch a lot of movies on Turner Classics. And now I look at the credits and I'm amazed to see names that I recognize that were in films, you know, 10 years later or five years later, you know, is the, is the talent. But you, you know, when you're eight years old and reading a comic, do you really care who the name of the artist no, is no, no, or no, who no. drew it? No, no, you're, you're reading it for the good show off for the, uh, for the experience. Yeah, exactly. As far as I was concerned as a kid, um, who drew it, that's the, he did it all that, it didn't occur to me as a kid that there would be a writer and a, a, a penciler and an inker and a letter right. and a colorist. And, and you know, and a, and a couple of times, yeah. And a couple of times a year I would stay out of school, take a friend. My father would take us into his office and we would see, he'd take us around and we'd see the, the artist, the person doing the, the lettering and you see the whole process and used to read and used to read these stories on on uh, big pieces, you know, in, in their big artwork before they were shrunk down. Kind of like their poster board size. Right, right. Uh, but let's just, that's a good starting point there. Um, because I'm sure the editor of 1940s, 50s, and 60s was a different job than it is today. It seemed like um, the editor, now I'm, I'm getting this from where I you know, just as a novice here and as a, a reader, it seems that the um, editors of the of, of that gold and silver, particularly of those ages, it was almost like the editor said, and I'll ask you, is this how it happened? Uh, let's go to Edmund Hamilton, for example, who your dad knew before he went to DC Comics. Uh, yeah. Uh, as a great science fiction writer. And uh, I read an interview with your dad somewhere that said that some of these great science fiction writers occasionally would need what they called hungry money or hunger money. And they'd yep. uh, write to write a couple of quick stories for comic books uh, to pay some bills, to get some food or whatever, and then go back to their quote, real job of uh, writing a novel or their uh, science fiction stories for other things. But, um, for example, if your dad, let's say, um, any number of things happen, was it more the editor would say, uh, 
Ed Hamilton, I want a story about red kryptonite and um, Kurt Swan's going to draw it. Or did Ed Hamilton say, uh, Mort, I have a story about red kryptonite. And then the editor would edit it afterwards. How much of the plotting was done by the editor before the writer? Well, even put it this over? way. I woke up. Now, there are many different stories. And if you talk to people it, in D.C., uh, writers, other editors who knew my father, worked with him, worked uh, for him, you hear all sorts of stories. Some of them are true. <laughs> Some of them, I would say, are greatly uh, exaggerated, and some I would say are not true. Mm-hmm. I'll start by saying that I woke up every single morning, literally every single morning, with him coming into my room and say, "How's this first story?" Um, <laughs> the and, and, and when he would drive on my block, there were five other kids, so we had you know carpool. So in a carpool, of course, he would be telling uh, everybody Superman stories, see if they could guess the endings. His rule is, if I could guess the ending, he'd throw out the story. Mm. That it would be too uh, that it would be too simple. Mm-hmm. And he liked asking my friends, you know, or in, in the carpool because it was a way of those were his. Um, you know, he was writing for kids. Mm-hmm. He wanted to see what they, you know, wanted to see what they thought. Now. I, he was the editor for 30 years, and that was when, by far, Superman was the most successful it has ever been. Mm-hmm. And one of his general philosophy, management philosophy of being editor, he came up with a way of uh, ensuring quality control, which basically is he makes all decisions. Right. And and that was his, the attitude that alienated a lot of people. His attitude to an, a writer would be, if you don't like it, leave. Mm. The He was running everything. And probably, uh, you know, uh, I wrote a book on anger. I would say he had an anger problem. Mm. You know, when you, f- you heard the stories in terms of how abusive he was and, and so on, uh, and insulting the, I mean, I used to go in his office and see that the, the insults that he would fire at, uh, at, you know, writers, um, and, um, even some, you know, artists when he fired Wayne boring, Wayne boring was shocked. And he said, am I hearing you right? And my father's response was, do you need a kick in the stomach to know, tell you that you're not wanted here? Wow. You know, he, he, he thought, that, you know, Don Nickel, Don Rickles passed away. My father's perception of himself was that he was far superior to Rickles in giving insults to people <laughs> and what he would call clever insults. So anytime I would find a passage, you know, in one of these books about Superman and comics and it would say these things about my father, when I would read it to my mother, we would become hysterical because we lived with the guy. Now, you know, these, I said, the writers are complaining. They, they don't know what it's like to, to give them your homework and, uh, have to deal, have to deal with that or to have to hear him complain to my mother. Cause it's not ashtrays in the, um, you know, in the bedroom. So he could smoke a cigar, which he intentionally, uh, you know, uh, did not put in there. So, um, he was very tough. Now at the same time as a psychologist, 
uh, I could also say the bottom line is he was a difficult boss, like a zillion difficult bosses, no different than a difficult boss like Trump. Right. And the writers and and the artists actually did not have the skills to deal with them. They actually needed a seminar on how to give criticism. So th- that so that was a, a culture uh, that he created, which is I am the boss and I'm going to remind you that I'm the boss. And if you don't like it, then leave. Now, in terms of ideas, and many people would say he would take credit for other people's ideas and then give them to another writer and so on. Mm-hmm. You know what? Some of that is probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, just like it is in the TV industry. You know, when, when I think that a TV show like the great twilight zone or Bonanza, these people just had to come up with one story a week. That's nothing. Right. You know, the, 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 a, a friend who was an expert on the twilight zone will say that there were a bunch of bad, great twilight zones, average and bad, mm-hmm. but that's a once a week job that, uh, with Superman, it was three stories in an issue plus times 10 because they were, you know, Superman, Supergirl, Superboy, this action, is, adventure. I, I bring this up. I bring this up to young people all the time uh, who, you know, will cut down some of the Silver Age stories. And I bring that very point to them. A, a writer today writes one story that takes 12 issues of filler and splash page fight scenes these writers were turning in three and four stories times 10 titles every month yeah and i would say my father was generating 90 percent of them the pressure was intense i can imagine that's why that's why in retrospect he was the way that he was he was obsessed with uh superman and keeping it at the top and so naturally he would rehash stories. How is that different than watching a Bonanza story? Oh, I've seen this before, but instead of little Joe, now it's Adam. Exactly. And my, my father used to call it the switcheroo. Now, one funny story I will tell you is, do you remember the Loretta Young show? Oh yeah. Loretta Young. Sure. Okay. So she had, you know, for those who don't, she had a weekly um, show. I think it was on Sunday night. Mm-hmm. And one time there was a Loretta Young show I was watching with my father. So he said, this would be a good Lois Lane story. <laughs> so he adapted it. Or if somebody else did it, he would say he, he used the word stole. He stole this. But if my father did it, he would say, I adopted it. <laughs> and my father's attitude was everybody steals. But what he said, he steals better than anybody. Right. So... Um, <laughs> He turned it into a Lois Lane story. So then one day with the Metropolis mailbag where kids would write in, he shows me a letter that says, Dear Editor, I said, I was watching Loretta Young the other day and it was the same story you had with Lois Lane. They stole the idea from you. We laughed. The kids saw the rerun of Loretta Young. So those were, he never took it too seriously. But when you mention a writer like Edward Hamilton, he would be one of those writers who would generate ideas. And my father would be acceptable to him because he respected him. He respected the science fiction crew. Otto Binder, I think, was another one. Mm -hmm. He respected these guys. Uh, He thought that the comic ones, quite frankly, were the low level. Mm -hmm. And um, that was very frustrating for him. What a lot of people don't realize is despite 
doing Superman for 30 years and all that, he wrote over a thousand magazine articles for magazines like Reader's Digest, Collier's, Side Evening Post. And with his, there's an interesting dichotomy of people who know him. The people who worked in the comic industry will say many negatives. And I don't deny that those negatives are true. He was mm-hmm. demanding, he was obnoxious and, and uh, you know, critical and got jokes at other people's uh, expense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those, I can understand what those people were dealing with. As I said, you know, my mother and I would laugh because we lived with him. We saw him, you know, 24 seven. You have no idea of what it was like going out to a Chinese restaurant in uh, Great Neck, you know, Long Island. Uh, if he didn't like the service, you, 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 my mother would get embarrassed for the waiter. So all that is true. But with his writing friends, that was very different. They all had tremendous respect for him. People like Al Toffler, Betty Friedan, uh, a lot of very successful um, writers. And he treated them with respect more so than he did with the um, uh, Superman people. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that was really what he thought his end game was. He thought he was destined to go on to uh, bigger things. Well, I think it was interesting. That's one of the things that surprised me uh, a few years ago when I looked up your dad was how much work he had done in the science fiction world prior to joining DC Comics because that was my thing. I'm a big sci-fi fan, and I think that's one of the reasons I've always liked Superman and the Silver Age during the Mort Weisinger era was because he brought these great elements oh, of yeah, science for sure. fiction into my my uh, superhero funny books. And uh, I have right. friends today who will not even read a Batman story from that time period because they want Batman to be this dark, edgy guy fighting, you know, criminals in the dark alleys of Gotham. Right. They well, he was really a Batman. scientific sleuth. He was a scientific sleuth. Yes, and those That's are what my Batman favorite really uh, was. I love those old stories about that because in those stories, um, uh, the writers in those days would take Batman and put him in a weird sci-fi uh, situation, but he was still using his detective skills to solve a mystery. And I always loved right. that part of it, uh, mixing the science fiction with my superheroes. Now, with Superman, yeah. it's a natural. He is a science fiction character. And uh, uh, the favorites, the, the stories my the stories my father liked to write about to you know um, have the most were the ones where he lost his powers mm-hmm. and he would have to use his wits. And that's where you would see a lot of times of subtle little science points because he had to think and he had to, uh, you know, be, you know, be smart. By the way, I think one of the best stories Edward Hamilton ever wrote that my father gave me to read was The Man Who Evolved. Mm -hmm. The Big Headed Guy. Did you ever read it? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that was great. That was great. So you're right. He used to have and and we used to watch a lot of science fiction stories. My father was my best friend. The it was a incredible childhood to grow up in this uh, uh, Superman fantasy environment. Anytime we would watch TV, he would always ask, how would you make it better? Can you guess the ending? Mm-hmm. When we'd watch Twilight Zones after the first you know, minute, 
Uh, he was like, can you guess the ending? Should I tell you? Should I tell you now? And, and the truth is, he would either guess the ending or, or, or his ending would actually have been better. Better. You know, and um, it was just great. When my friends came over, they would love uh, speaking to him. He had a tremendous sense of uh, of humor, and everything was um, imagination. I, I, I consider myself when I compare myself to my, you know, uh, friends to have a much greater sense of uh, of imagination and thinking like that, and try to instill that in my own kids you know, as well. So I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a fantasy world every day, you know, here's a Superman story. What do you think? I, I also read that, uh, uh, basically instead of alarm clock, your dad would wake you up with up, up and away every morning. Yep. That's <laughs> how he would get me out of bed and then go into Superman. Story. So he really was living the Superman then. He was living the Superman. He would, he would. And as, 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 career went on and he, he was being rewarded very well for the uh, success, but he was um, also resentful. You know, he, the, uh, there's a, a Superman's cover, which I actually have the poster artwork from where uh, Clark Kent's walking out on Superman. Mm -hmm. Do you know that one? Yeah. Just get your own self. And my father was going through that. That's just a projection. Now, when I look at a lot of the Superman covers, I see uh, the psychology, mm. you know, as a psychologist. And a lot of the interpretations uh, that I have of them really, I mean, to me, they make sense. And they're validated by my experience, you know, with him. But he was resentful of Superman at one point. Yet, whenever we go on a vacation, within five minutes, everybody in the hotel would know the editor Superman <laughs> is there. So you know, he would use it to uh, he would use it to his advantage and uh, exploit it. One time, I, he comes home from work, and I say, "WABC, the um, music uh, station, radio station, is having a contest." Whoever can draw the best picture of Superman gets free tickets to the upcoming Broadway musical. Do you remember that? It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Right, I think Bob Holiday. So, yeah, yeah. The, Bob Holiday, very good, was in it. The guys who wrote the music, Adam and Strauss, had done Bye Bye Birdie. Harold Prince right. was the producer from Fiddler on the Roof. It had a lot of star uh, and creative talent behind it. And they were at my dad's office. You know, for like from uh, weeks at a weeks at a time, learning the character and talking. So anyway, my father says, "Don't worry about it." So he comes home three days later, and he says, "All right, here's the thing to send in." And the picture is, uh, there's a guy, there's a shack, and the guy in the foreground looks like Zero Mostel Tevi from Fiddler, yeah. and the guy is sitting on the shack with a fiddle, and Superman is flying in the background, and the guy with the fiddle is saying, Tevi, where in the good book does it say a man can fly? And Tevi says, not good book, you fool, comic book, and now <laughs> it's a Broadway musical. Well, so you have something that's thought of by the editor of, who does it for a living. The artwork is done, I think it was it could have been done by Kurt Swan. And uh, I send it in. I get a call a week later that I won tickets. So my sister and I go. And during halftime, 
all the uh, disc jockeys were there and they had all these silly pictures that kids drew of Superman and right behind the bar, I see my masterpiece. <laughs> my, my, my mistake was I didn't ask for it back. Mm. So, so then, then I tell him there's Mickey Mantle day. The owner of national periodicals, Jack Leibowitz was a Cleveland Indian fan. Mm. So he would get uh, season tickets to the Yankee game so he could go when the Indians came in and the tickets would be maybe six row behind the visiting dugout. So I grew up as a real, you know, Yankee fan. And that would bother my father when Mickey Mantle became more of an idol rather than uh, Superman. <laughs> so he comes home and he shows me uh, the artwork where the caption was going to be, you see Superman hitting a ball and it's going off. Mickey Mantle's hitting a ball and it's going off Superman's hand. And Superman is saying, not even Superman can catch a ball hit by Superman. And then it was going to be arranged because he was also head of uh, public relations, national periodicals, that I would get to walk out on the field and present it to Mickey oh, cool. uh, on behalf of all the Superman fans. My father used to say every time we go to a Yankee game and I was cheering for Mickey, he would say it would take 60 Yankee stadiums to fill up for all the people who read Superman, indicating Superman is better than the Yankees. And that's <laughs> what I should be thinking. So anyway, he brings it home and Mickey Mantle was a switch hitter. His number was seven mm -hmm. and the artist, who I will tell you who that was in a second, he drew it so you can't see the number, and therefore you don't know it's Mickey. Mm. So I started to cry and uh, forgot the whole thing. It, it was drawn by Wayne Boring, and he mm. signed it. Now I, now I have it in my home, and it's framed. Oh, One of a kind, Superman amazing. piece of art. So, you know, I had stories like this and experiences when he took me to see um, Ray Bradbury had plays on uh, Broadway. And my father actually discovered Ray Bradbury. He took a story out of a slush pile of rejects and printed it, and then the rest became history. So he told me, he had me read the Martian Chronicles, and he showed me pictures of Ray, and he told me that Ray Bradbury was really a Martian. He was from another world. <laughs> and he said, he said, how else? How else do you think he could have written this book in such detail? And he showed me, he said, look at all these pictures. Do you notice that you never see his hands? Because he doesn't have any, because he's a Martian. Now, he would say this, mind you, so convincingly, and over and over and over for years, that you do actually start to believe it. <laughs> so then... He took me to meet Ray Bradbury, and as we're driving to the city, he kept making me promise, don't shake hands with him, because he'll be embarrassed. <laughs> and Ray Bradbury then confirmed to me that my father did uh, discover him, you Amazing. know, or first to identify his uh, writing. So those were all great um, thrills. And he uh, inspired me. And it was just like any time that we get into an argument, my father does this, my father does that. I was the closer. After I said my father's the story of Superman, there was nothing else for anybody yeah, to you, say. Yeah, where do you go from there? <laughs> right. right? Yeah. When I went to camp, the I went to this camp in New Hampshire, and I hated it. It just, you know, uh, it just wasn't for me, and I was young. But the only good thing was, that he would send me comics all the time. So then, you know, they have like a canteen where you can get candy and comic books. Mm -hmm. So I had, 
I had no interest in the comics. I would do, I was like the Godfather. I could dole them out to the other <laughs> students and it, you know, and give them like, give, they'd give me like, I could take like eight cents on uh some eight cents on the, on the dime so that they could get them cheaper for me from the uh, canteen. So it was just a great um, childhood. And, great and through job. much of my life, that was a way of, you know, everybody would always be impressed. I could impress other people. Uh, you know, my father was the editor Superman and it was, um, it was great. And, and then as I got older, the realization of, of what other people thought about him the that was not comfortable to read, you know, and pa- right. painful to hear, right. and would probably get defensive. But at the same time, I knew it was true. Alan Schumer wrote a great piece for um, what's that magazine that comes out? Uh, the back issue. Magazine? <clears throat> it's a comic. It it comes out like every periodically. The uh, anyway, he wrote a thing for it, um, the wit and wisdom. Hmm of uh, the whimsical wit of Walt Weisinger and so on. And the way he did it was he interviewed me, got some content, and he used all the comic covers that my father was responsible for to tell the story. And then I would comment um, on it. And uh, it was quite good and and interesting. And uh, revealing, but a lot of people. And then I wrote a evaluation that I think is also going to be published. It's about ten pages. You know, I could have written a hundred pages on it as a psychologist. And I will say, a lot of the things that people would say, how abusive he was, and and um, it must have been a terrible manager. Except he didn't really care about his staff. All he cared about was the result. Mm-hmm. And and from that perspective. No one has ever been more successful in terms of that position. Well, the, the books were never late. That- yeah, but here's the thing that here's the thing that I referred to earlier is that after he would be at the office, he'd come home and after dinner, he'd be writing magazine articles till mm-hmm. three in the morning. Where where most writers would be thrilled if they could do one article a month, he was doing like one a week. And we're talking about major articles. Was it something you know, he, he would, felt he, like he had there, to there, do? There, there was not as uh, yet, that, and that was his real interest. Yeah. He was a journalist and a writer. He was the bottom line is he was multimedia before anybody ever even heard of the term. Mm-hmm. He was into all different types of things. He published a magazine called The Great Next Circle, in um, you know in our in our hometown. He he wrote a column for. Um, parade magazine that came out with the uh, Herald Tribune called uh, Bonanza USA. He had written a book called The Thousand One Valuable Things You Can Get Free, which was the first original paperback that Bantam ever published. And it went up like 25, 26 editions. And it got to the point where, so 1001 did not become a popular phrase until he really introduced that. Well, that's actually a famous book. I think almost everybody has heard of that book, but not everybody yeah, knows and, it was more licensed. But here's the funny thing. He he started out where he would have to contact companies. You know, what can I put in my free book? What are you willing to give away? It'll be good publicity for you and so on. Uh, by the 10th edition, 
you wouldn't believe the uh, mail that he would get. Could you put us in your book? We'll give this away free. <laughs> and that was the plan. Then he turned that that book into a uh, weekly column for the Herald Tribune called uh, Bonanza USA. Turned that into a book, the best of Bonanza. I mean, he taught me a very important thing. Take a subject and then be able to write it 15 different uh, ways. So that when I came out with the uh, book on criticism, I learned that. Yeah, it's how to criticize your kids, how to criticize your boss, you know, uh, mm-hmm. how to criticize your parents and so on. So he really knew how to milk the um, subject. So naturally, if he had a chance to rehash a Superman story and use the same plot gimmick, you know what? Of course, he was going to do that. Otherwise, how can anybody have all those, all those, um, you know, all those stories? Yeah, you couldn't. And you when you think that he was doing that for thirty years, I mean, how long was Seinfeld on? It's it's absolutely staggering. That's right. He was a creative genius, yes. and I would say at a much higher level than somebody like Stanley. I don't care about Stanley's success. Mm-hmm. I met him at a, a conference that my father. He couldn't debate with my father about about things. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not even close. The problem is my father really wanted to go on. He wrote a novel called The Contest about the Miss American Contest, which Publishers Weekly said was the airport of the beauty you know, contest. Remember, airport was a big, uh, was a big book. Yeah. So he was multi, multi-talented. And, and even though Superman is probably the thing he is most associated with, it's the least uh, I would say, um, a valuable thing from his point of, from his point of view, mm-hmm. you, you know, in terms of what he wanted to do, you know, it's, and it's like you could meet him and no matter what the subject is, his attitude is what the hell do you know? I wrote an article on it <laughs> and I'm talking about articles called the, the fabulous Frank Twitter or a cover article for the Saturday Evening Post. I've got the world's most mysterious disease, which was multiple sclerosis. He became the uh, head of public relations for the multiple sclerosis uh, society. Were you ever into wrestling growing up? Uh, professional wrestling? Yeah, even though it was fake. Yeah. No, no, like professional Oh, yeah, yeah, with TV. George Becker, Johnny Weaver, the masked bolos. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I used to watch wrestling every Thursday and Saturday, and I'd throw around the pillows as I was watching, mm-hmm. and it would drive my father nuts because what a waste of time. Why can't you read a book? And it's fixed. So one day he comes home and he says, Hank, have you ever heard of Antonina Rocca? So I went nuts. I said, yeah, Rocky's one of the, my favorite wrestlers. Turned out that Rocca's publicist was a friend of my father's, asked him, and she asked him for some ideas. So he decided that he would put Rocca in a Superman story. Maybe you remember it, where the cover is um, Rocca throwing Superman out of the ring. Yes. Now, of course, in the end, you realize you realize that Rocca is really Superman. It's really is Superman is disguised as Rocca. Right. You know, and that's and uh, to beat the gamblers. But anyway, as a result of that. We went to Madison Square Garden to see one of the big championship wrestling matches. I got to take my next door neighbor and uh, drove, uh, you know, back to the dressing room. We got to meet all the wrestlers and it was like a real thrill. It was just another 
another thing he did for me uh, from his Superman um, leverage. I remember that we lived in Great Neck and one of the neighboring towns was Little Neck and they had a movie theater there. So one time my father lost his wallet there and the guy called him up. I found your wallet, the owner of the theater. And he had looked for identification. He saw he was the editor of Superman. From that point on, we had free tickets. I wanted to go to a movie in Little Nick. <laughs> Amazing. You know, we could go to a ho- we could go to a hotel at that time it was in Puerto Rico and so on. And you know, by three o'clock, everybody at the pool is sitting around listening to uh, his stories and so on. And he would embellish everything. You know, as a writer, he, he was went to um, Russia in um, 1963. Temple Fielding. I don't know if you know that name. But Temple Fielding was the major travel expert and wrote all these books, Fielding's Guides to Europe and how oh, to okay. go to Europe on $10 a day and so on. Became a multimillionaire. My father got him out of his contract so he could go on to make millions with other uh, publishers. So when Temple Fielding was 50, uh, the King of Copenhagen knighted him for all he had done for um, tourism. So he invited his 50 closest friends. My father was included with my mother, Copenhagen for a week. Every night, a different chef prepared a 12 course Mm. dinner. Then they met the owners of the restaurant 21, you know, uh, who was going to Russia to buy caviar. Invited my parents, they had John Gunther's uh, guide. And uh, when he came back, he was like an expert on Russia. And naturally, since nobody else had ever been there, he could say whatever he wanted and nobody could challenge him. He, then he came up with a line where he, where he says, uh, Khrushchev told them uh, Superman might be the man of steel, but he can't break the Iron Curtain. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing that everybody in the world knew Superman? Yeah. When I was at the University of Kansas, I went up to the student um, you know, service, student uh, event uh, service. And I said, how would you like to have the editor of Superman come out and give a lecture? Plus he shows two Superman, you know, George Reeves films. And they loved it. So the bottom line is I got my father a gig, came with my mother and it was, it was great. So it was amazing. It was, it was, it was was the happiest time of my life was my, um, my childhood, specifically the years I would say from 1956 to uh, about 1963. Mm-hmm. And while other kids were going out on a Friday night, I was watching Twilight Zone, playing gin or chess with him till three o'clock in the morning. Amazing. He was my uh, best friend. When I was in a freshman, and I was a terrible student, so the first school I went to was ridiculous. Three types of students. One, kicked out of really good schools. Two, underachievers like me or to be really stupid. It was wild. It was like the original Animal House mm-hmm. uh, movie. So when I took English, the system would be my father would write the paper and then he would mail it to me, FedEx it to me. And one time, like one time the assignment was on dialogue and he wrote a dialogue between Shakespeare and the teacher with every line being a quote from a Shakespeare play. Wow. Naturally, he wrote 
please call me so I can explain this to you before you turn it in. Yeah. One time the teacher wrote on a comment, your work is baffling, can be extraordinarily good or adequate. Things I wrote on my own were adequate. <laughs> Things that he wrote were extraordinary. But the funny thing was, he taught me, I wrote nine books. He taught me how to write. He taught me, always try to make the first paragraph a hook and be original. He wrote a paper on superstitions for me, the origin of superstitions. Mm. He didn't do any research. I looked at the bibliography. He made up all the books and he put his friends' names uh, in as the, <laughs> the, as the authors. So he just made up so, the whole thing. So the, the, in the last line, uh, he said the last line is like a Hitchcock ending. So I look at the last line and it says, I hope this paper gets me an A, even though the name Hank Weisinger has 13 letters in it. <laughs> so, you know, who's going to, who's going to think like that? What kind of college students not thinking like that? That's, that's just amazing. And to grow up with that, to have that, that mental stimulation all the time, that's just, uh, it, he, he made everything fun. You know, I mean, even when he would insult me, though, he would make them funny. Mm -hmm. You know, like, does Mickey Mantle care what you get on a chemistry test? <laughs> and it, it, it was, it was just a great, it was just a great childhood. Always made me feel loved and, and safe. And I remember Tim telling me, and then no matter what you do, you're going to be successful. What what more vote of confidence? That's, this is when I was getting D's yeah, and weird. C's. In third grade, they wanted to leave me back because I was I couldn't read, but I was too big. And my mm. father taught me how to read like in three days. Amazing, absolutely amazing. You know your Yankee story. Growing up there, I can understand the New York Yankees. You probably wouldn't guess that a Southerner from Richmond, Virginia, would also be a Yankees fan from the earliest memories. Uh, 1956, I often say that 1956 was a big year for me. I was four, and that summer I found Superman, Elvis Presley, and the New York Yankees all in the same summer. Four is really young. I mean, I was eight in 56, and that was the first. Uh, Yankee game I ever went to and I saw the Yankees win in 10 innings the great Bob Feller pitched in relief and Mickey hit a home run and then I went to my first World Series in 56 against the Dodgers Yankees won 6-2 Mickey hit a home run and I saw Yogi throw out Jackie Robinson for stealing but deep down I had to acknowledge that the Dodger uh, blue road uniform was nicer than the Yankee pinstripe uniform. Yeah, it's a nice looking. Dodgers had nice looking stuff. Uh, but in Richmond, yeah. in the late 50s until about 64, 65, I think is when it changed. Uh, Richmond was the, uh, wasn't called AAA then, but we were the International League. Uh, Richmond V's, Richmond, Virginia. We were the Yankees minor league team. And every spring training, the Yankees, on their way back to New York, would stop and play uh, uh, an exhibition game with their local uh, AAA minor league Richmond V's. Pardon the interruption, lovely listener. But at this point, Dr. Weisinger, Hank, and I found another common interest, that being the love of baseball and the New York Yankees in particular. And we kind of went down that little tangent path for um, a good 15 or 20 minutes. So 
Uh, I will save you from that, Superman fans, uh, and save it for that eventual Yankees podcast that I'm sure I'll be doing one day. Now back to some interesting story. We get back to uh, Hank as he's telling another story of how um, things that you or I or he might keep to himself and just think his dad was not afraid to say at all. See, my father would have said it. (laughs) My father was the type of person that one of my friends from college once came to visit me during the summer, you know, and spend the day. We had a swimming pool in our backyard. We went out for dinner and he had this huge, giant, reddish, steel woolish beard. Mm. And the entire time we were eating for dinner, my father was making uh, (laughs) beard jokes. And and they were hysterical. But my mother was embarrassed and so on. But they were hysterical. Like he would ask him, he said, when we get home, we've run out of Brillo. Can you wash our pot? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like one insult after, but they were funny. Well, my friend uh, could only get into medical school in uh, in Mexico. My father would make just all Mexican jokes about, um, uh, you know, uh, bring me back a taco and that type of thing. Mm. When, when my other friend was going to graduate school in South Dakota, you know, my father was giving him a lecture on Indians. This was like unbearable <laughs> to people, but they were so funny. He made everybody laugh. He made you laugh while he was insulting you. Right. That's, it was, see, that's a and on the other hand, too. if you if you ever said anything to him, he could take it, but he he could he could give it, but he couldn't take it. Mm. Interesting. Now I will tell you that people would say today the letters that my father would be getting if he had a Superman as dear editor, or how would Superman handle North Korea? And he would say things like maybe he'd use his um, heat vision to melt all the missiles, you know, or his or to uh, freeze them. One of his standard lines would be that. A kid wrote a letter saying, dear editor, you say that Superman can fly faster than uh, light. But according to professors, uh, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, this is impossible. (laughs) So the response was, uh, what Einstein says is theory, Superman's speed is fact. (laughs) I loved one time, one time. He brings, he says, Hank, look at this letter I got. This was after Kennedy's assassination. Do you remember the story where the end Superman had to be in two places at once? Yes. And the, the gimmick was that it's Kennedy and with the tagline of Superman saying, if you can't trust the president of the United States, who can you trust? Yes. You remember that one? Yes. It's classic. Okay. Al so, it. Yeah. So a month after it comes out. He had to call the White House, by the way, to make sure he could run that story because it was already on the press and wanted to make sure, know if he should pull it. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, it's fine. And then about a month later, he shows me a handwritten letter. Dear editor, thank you for remembering my uncle, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, called the White House to validate it, printed it. I mean, I wish I had that letter. Yeah, amazing. Wow. He used to bring home, you know how when you go to a, the library, and you look at a journal, they have, like the whole year is in a, a bound volume. Yes. So he used to bring home bound volumes 
of the Superman comics uh. from 1940, 41. I mean, this is what I would read all night. Uh. Can you imagine if I had those now? I didn't think anything of it at the time. No, you wouldn't. You were a kid. How would? Why would you? You know, and, and of course, right? They were all in mid. They were. All, I mean, they were all over his um, home office. I used to love some of my favorite memories. While he was sitting at his old Underwood typewriter. That's a question. And I was it shows ask, you. I, I mean, once wrote a process. I once wrote. I once wrote a thing. I don't know if anybody ever got it to the Superman movie. Uh, people that I would give them the Underwood typewriter. It would be good in a Daily Planet scene because that, on that typewriter, you have no idea how many Superman stories were written. And from the editor, Superman, it would be it would be good in the movie in Perry White's office. Yeah, those were two things I wanted to ask. One, um, what? How did he write? Did he write on a typewriter or a legal pad with a pencil? Or uh, no, nope, he wrote on he wrote on the Underwood typewriter the Underwood that typewriter. is in my possession. It's in my uh, possession. See, that's a that's a that's a thing there. That should be in a museum somewhere. I agree, but I want it for now, and then I'll give it to um, to my uh, kids. I also have four of the artwork of you know the covers mm. that were um, that were drawn, plus the Wayne Boring one of a kind Superman piece of art. Wayne Boring also made him an ashtray. You know, ceramic ashtray with Superman. I used it as a cereal bowl. Okay. Then one day I broke it and I got scared, so I hid it under the um, <laughs> couch. My the, the the housekeeper found it, and my mother glued it back together. <laughs> but a ceramic Superman bowl, handmade by Wayne Boring. Right, Whew. it was an ashtray. An ashtray. So even though oh, it was oh, an, an ashtray, ashtray that you, you used know, as a cereal bowl. For my father, <laughs> right, I used it as a cereal bowl. Well, your dad smoked a cigar, right? He didn't smoke cigarettes, right. did he? Or did he? Everybody um, smoked cigarettes back then, so. Yeah, he smoked, but he gradually went to, uh, went to cigar. That's why there were no ashtrays in the bedroom. My mother hated it. Mm. So he would yell at her, thinking that she was forgetful. She wasn't forgetful. She, <laughs> she was strategic. Want, she didn't want that smelly thing in her bedroom. Right. <laughs> right. Um, also, the letter column. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to think they were fake until I read Some one, of them were. And then I read one that was actually from somebody I knew. And I thought, hey, you got your letter right. in. But I still think some of them were were fake. Some were fake, but they were fake. They were they, they weren't what I would say were fake. They were strategic, and that they would help develop Superman mythology. Yes, yes, that's what I would thought. Some you of know, them, like, like, does Red Kryptonite really blah 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 blah, would give the editor a chance to to clarify. Right, and then he would also make up letter. He would also make up letters to put my friends' names in. <laughs> that would be just like you're saying that would be a see if we were friends then he would have made up a letter and he would have put your name in <laughs> I mean and let me tell you something there, there, there was a long time where his name as editor wasn't even in it that was a huge fight thing where he had a demand from uh, these uh, people above him that he wants his name in as editor otherwise he's walking Every so it was interesting is that while he would many of the writers and the artists would describe him as having a very uh, fighting like personality, 
but that's how he was also with people above him. And he would also have to fight with his boss to get the, the his riders a raise. Mm-hmm. That's the untold type of uh, type of story. Well, you talk about having, uh, like your book title, having to perform under pressure. The amount of pressure that an editor at DC had to be under during that time period, not just the fact that he alone with one other editor were dealing with close to 40 different titles and multiple writers, multiple artists, everything is going on. He also has to get stuff passed by the comics code authority. He's got to make sure all of that works and he's got to please the people. And he was a big factor in that. I mean, he had a big debate with that psychiatrist who said comics are bad for kids. Mm-hmm. And he, and see, and, and because he was not only was his story a Superman, but he was a professional writer, so he could write those articles in major magazines and bring it more to the public's, you know, awareness, which became a great form of PR. You know, the guy says, uh, juvenile delinquents read comics. And my father said, do they drink milk? (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, Uh, but it takes a wit. It takes a writer to be able to handle, uh, and it takes a certain personality to be able to handle the pressure that had to be coming at him from all sides from above to make sure it's either squeaky clean or no blood or no wrong words being used or don't show Superman doing the wrong thing or in the wrong light. It, it just had to be staggering. And, and I think sometimes the speed with which they had to be working, um, because right. we're, we're talking about basically a, a media that was pointed directly at kids in those days. But a lot of these writers mm-hmm. were writing. Exactly. They yeah. were still writing stories that they wanted to entertain themselves. They just didn't want to always put out, you know, a, a formulaic one, two, three. This will keep the ten-year-old happy until next year. So it's a little bit of both. But the the amount of pressure and the speed and the stuff, just the stuff that that uh, Mort. Weisinger and Julius Schwartz had to put up with in those days. And that was, let me tell you that Julie Schwartz, Julie Schwartz's office was right next to him. And whenever my father had some extra time, he'd go over and he'd throw Julie an idea mm-hmm. and here's another story and so on. And, and, and this is one thing that I get upset about. A lot of people would say things, but it was after my father died where he could not defend himself. Mm. So Julius Schwartz will make it like he was the big guy and whatever. And so that is simply not true. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, it was like Carmine, Car, it was like Carmine Infantino. Do you know who he is? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My, 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 my father described him as an educated monkey. Carmine Infantino. Yep. Yep. Zero talent got in because of connections, uh, with, with, with Warner's. How much of that? He was a joke compared to my father. Well, how much of that do you think happened in those days? I think it happened in that incident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the relationship that you know of between Julie Schwartz and your dad? Best friends, kids, friends, friends as kids, more like um, brothers. One was older than the other, but not by much. Mm-hmm. I forgot whether my dad was older or, or Julie, mm-hmm. a good man, very warm. He was, he was, he 
to me uh, was uh, reminded me was like was like an uncle type and not as as aggressive as my father and um, not as talented in uh, not even not even close. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I say, look at the achievements that they've done in other things. Right. I remember my father had this huge cabin in his room and it was all these science fiction s- stories from wonder stories, startling stories, you know, the pulp. Right. The early pulp magazines. Stuff, right? He had articles. Yeah. He had stories in every, in every one. Those are now at, um, Syracuse university and some are at Wyoming university. Mm. Those were two schools that asked for the papers and I'm glad I didn't keep them because you know what I would, you have to take, they deserve to be taken care of. Yeah. That early pulp stuff. I was, I, I, yeah. That's right. I yeah. would not have taken, uh, over the years, you know, uh, taking care of them. Yeah, it's so a miracle. That, that any of that stuff survived. It was meant to be read and passed on or thrown away. They had right. no idea. Except if you had, <laughs> except if you had, except if you had something written in it, right. it was really interesting because I picked up that same habit of every time I had a magazine article in a magazine, I would end up saving it, whatever. One way that I am different than my father is I don't need that stuff anymore mm, mm-hmm. just because I had an article and, and so on. So you're a, you're able to, to kind of let that go and, and, and not have to have the printed copy yourself of the, of the magazine. Exactly. I remember when the I'm out in L.A., so my father sends me um, the script of the Superman movie mm. way before it comes out. Mm. You know, it's like reading a novel because yeah. what people don't, a lot of people don't realize is Superman one and two was was one supposed to be that was one script, right? And then when then Warner's divided in half and they knocked out all the Brando scenes at Superman uh, two, mm-hmm. they thought they were going to screw Brando by having, you know, him headline both movies. Yeah. They... And Brando's agent said that is not going to happen. And Warner's realizing it's going to make a fortune anyway. We could save some money, mm-hmm. so we don't need Brando. See, they went for the money rather than the yeah. great uh, film, right? And my father felt my father felt hurt that he wasn't writing the movie because hmm. he didn't think anybody could come up with a storyline better. Interesting. His idea was the that Superman goes back to Krypton to try to prevent it from exploding because then not only you get the Kryptonese culture but you get the real science fiction in and, and the special effect and at the same time you know like love story is you know the planet's going to blow up mm-hmm. and you don't want the people to die. Yeah. See, I love that. He once got an art. He once got a letter from a. Uh, and excuse the language on this one because I want to say it exactly right. as the kid wrote it. Dear editor, does Superman ever take a piss in the bottle of candor? <laughs> <laughs> I would say no. <laughs> How how great how great is that? <laughs> you can't. You know. You can't. You can't make no, that up. No, you can't. Dear, dear editor, do you, do you actually think I enjoy your flash comics about a dumb bastard who runs around in his long underwear? Amazing. Yeah, the stuff that didn't get printed. And, you think, and, think, of, and think of what type of kid is motivated to send something like that yeah, in. Yeah, who would do that? It's just a, a, a amazing right. to me that, uh, that, 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 one, he could handle that. 
and and uh, keep all of this stuff straight. Even as readers, sometimes we have a hard time picking up this month's issue and thinking, wait a minute, what did Green Lantern do? Where, what is he doing? What's going on? And I have to tell you, I, I mean, I have these images when you bring up the Metropolis mailbag of him sitting at a big, a big dining room table with just like 150 letters on, just opening them up and reading them. I mean, that's the point. He read them. See, that's really nice to know. That's that's really nice to know. The remember the great boo boo contest? Yeah. For people who don't remember that, it was they intentionally made mistakes. Uh, a team of kids from MIT won that. They found mistakes that he didn't even know were in it. I, I did another podcast last year with a friend of mine, John M. Wilson, and we did uh, we were taking a look at all those eighty page giants in order that they came out. And that story, the great boo-boo, the great mistake issue, was in one of those giants, which, by the way, is another feather in the Mort Weisinger hat. There wouldn't have been 80-page giants and annuals. That was a a Mort Weisinger invention. Thank you. Right, because he figured it's a way of repackaging repackaging the stories and making making money, increasing revenue. Exactly, and it was brilliant. We loved them. Some kids today don't understand that, well, it's just reprinted. Yeah, it's just reprinted, but you have to understand, as an eight-year-old kid in 59 or 60, we weren't able to go to our comic back-issue store and buy a 1946 comic book. We couldn't do that. So here DC is now putting eight, nine, ten stories from four or five or six years previous to when we were reading comics. They they yeah. would remember the great remember the great DC contest. Uh, which one was that? Which where the letter C and D was only going to be appear once in the entire issue, <sighs> and uh, he did it on continued on next page. You see, that was his gimmick. Everybody thought it would be in the story. He had to continue the next page. <laughs> That's just brilliant, brilliant stuff. I remember one time Bazooka Gum was having uh, Superman, you know, on the Penny Gum, the, instead of Bazooka Joe, right. they were going to have, they had Superman comics. Hmm. So my father brought home this huge box of Bazooka bubble gum for me and my sister. I'm talking about maybe a thousand pieces. Oh. And it started like a world war between me and my sister, <laughs> counting every piece, dividing it. Naturally, I would find I'd look in her room where she hid her so I could grab an extra 25 pieces whenever I could. Right. My father said that it created such fighting that he told them they were going to give us a box every month. <laughs> we didn't know that he didn't tell us that. And then he told them to forget it. Every Christmas, Kellogg's, he'd come home with a big box of Kellogg's. You know, as a gift, mm. because Kellogg's was a sponsor right. of Superman. You know, it's just great for me because the Frosted Flakes, you know, she could cut cereal. One time he wrote an article called The Fabulous Sara Lee on Sara Lee Cheesecakes. <laughs> so not only, you know, would he get his writing fee for it, but um, they gave him, for the publicity was so great, 365 Sara Lees. Uh, it deserved for every night. Wanted it. It would always be who's going to go down in the basement and would, would get get one tonight. <laughs> These would all be freebies. One time he wrote an article on the top wig maker in New York City. So the guy, 
made him his own wig. So he came home wearing it one day, and my mother went nuts. He looked like he looked like a uh, football coach, heavy set. The, the wig was like <laughs> short hair. So then, one Saturday, I have a friend over. So my father comes in. And he says, oh, Sandy, he says, my twin brother's here. Let me go get him. Uh, the only difference between me and him is he has hair. <laughs> so he would go out, put like a different shirt and pants on and put the wig on and then come in and make believe he was my uncle. Your father was a character. A yeah, I mean, that was that, right. That was his sense of humor. One time they gave my mo- his friend, this guy, Jay Emmett. Did you ever hear the name? Jay, I didn't hear the last Emmett. Hammett? The musician? Emmett. Oh, Emmett, no. No, okay. Jay Emmett was the nephew of the owner of Superman, and in many ways was a marketing genius. Um, he created James Bond, double O. He, he started a company called LCA, Licensing Incorporating America. Mm-hmm. So first, of course, he'd license all the superheroes. Yeah. Then he would get people like Sean Connery for 007 Cologne. Uh, at my bar mitzvah, he was doing Bridget Bardot bras. Um, he later, he, he inevitably ended up running Warner Communications. He took the fall for Steve Ross in the Westchester skimming operation. No kidding. And, and, and if you look him up in Wikipedia, he designed the baseball, Major League Baseball emblem. He helped the Boston Red Sox had a Memorial Day for him when he died. The guy was unbelievable in terms. I didn't even realize this of of how his marketing skills were second to none. So anyway, he and my father were best friends. And one time they had to drive my mother's friend into New York. So my father told her, he said, look, when we get to the toll booth, I have a new service. He said, just hold your cup out and they'll give you, tell them you want coffee. And they were jokes. They wanted to see what the guy would say. So they get it. She's holding her cup out. Demanding coffee, and the guy in the toll booth she's she's psychotic. One time, Johnny Abnett was one of my high school friends. Do you know who he is? No. Ever hear of first the company Abnett Electronics? Oh, okay, okay. right. <laughs> wow. Okay, but Johnny also went on. Look him up in Wikipedia to be a major director. He's won Emmys. He produced the Black Swan movie. He produced Risky Business. Uh, he directed. Up close and personal, and a bunch of movies. He's one of the big uh, honchos at Sundance. So, not a Sundance, at the American Film Institute. So, anyway, he came into the office. So, my father says, You see that briefcase there? And uh, he convinces him that he has a, there's a million dollars cash in it. And then he has <laughs> Jay come in, making believe, say, Oh, more Brinks is here to pick up the, the money and so on. So they made they, he, he he made it so convincing. He loved doing uh, he loved doing that. One time he got my mother wrote an article. It's like on the world's best fake diamonds. So he she, she got like this incredible fake diamond that you could you could at a party you could not tell you know you couldn't tell the difference. So one time we came home and our house was rocked and my mother said, Oh, they took the diamond. My father laughed. He said, you know, what's going to happen to this guy when he tries to sell it. <laughs> It'd be like in uh, Donnie Brasco for Casey. <laughs> so there were all these, there were all these, um, inside stories, you know, and he, to me, he was larger than life. 
And it didn't matter that all these people said these negative things about them and whatever. It's too late. The positive feelings are so solidified. I excuse all the uh, terrible ways. I don't, I don't defend them. But as right. a psychologist, I can explain to him so that when he was under the pressure, which you noted, of having to produce a story and a writer comes in with a stupid plot, what is he supposed to do? How is he supposed to act? Yeah, exactly. He had a standard of he had a standard of excellence that exceeded anybody else in comic history. Mm -hmm. And people can say what he wanted and so on, but he was there for 30 years. So people can say, well, he stole other people's ideas. He took the credit and so on. Well, you know what? Then the people who ran Superman must have been idiots if they couldn't see the, what type of person he was. Well, he kept them at the top. Superman has never sold better than he did right. during those 30 years. And regardless of what people say, they must have been doing something right there. And I did read that that actually Batman was your, was your dad's favorite uh, character. And that one of the things he took pride in, and this is something that kids today, where it's Batman all day, every day, don't understand that there was a time when you basically couldn't give Batman away. Uh, yep. And, and in many ways, I would say that, that although not formally, uh, but informally, as happens to many organizations, he supervised Julie. That's how, that's how it really was. So that's kind of, even though, uh, I guess technically, uh, they were considered equals in the, if their offices, they were, had had equal type of responsibilities as editors of certain titles. What you're saying is that a lot of the ideas come from Mort Weisinger. That's right. But you know, again, what people really don't realize, what added to the, the pressure that he can, must've been experiencing was the Superman was just one half of his life. He was doing the thousand and one valuable things he got free, columns for newspapers, magazine articles. So factor that in to the productivity and he, uh, how prolific he was, was ridiculous. Was ridiculous. His hobby was writing. You know, I, I, I'll write an article um, or a blog when I can't think of any, when I have to, or when, um, you know, I can't uh, put it off anymore. You know, I might think of a great idea in terms of, you know, my profession and so on, like a great article for the wall street journal on how to criticize Trump because I've written books on criticism, spoken to every government agency. So I'll get jazzed right. up thinking about the idea. But when I sit down, I don't really want to do it. He right. wanted to do it. Writing was, he had no hobbies. Mm. Writing was his hobby. So somebody who has the hobby of playing a musical instrument, my father wasn't going to play a musical instrument. He would have to be the, he would have to be the composer. Right. He'd have to write the music. <laughs> I, I remember one time when he did a paper for my um, sister, turned paper on H.G. Wells. Mm. And she got a bad grade because she didn't use references. And my father did not understand why did he want the student to write what other people say? Good point. He, see, he, see, he thought his thoughts about H.G. Wells would be 
more intelligent and better than what somebody wrote in a book. He actually thought, because he liked science fiction, that H.G. Wells was the greatest science fiction writer, comparative to somebody like Jules Verne, because everything mm-hmm. Wells wrote still had, everything Jules Verne wrote came true. You couldn't get a patent on the submarine because of the way he described it in such detail, so nobody could ever get a patent. But because the stuff that H.G. Wells... Yeah, we're still not invisible. There's no war of the worlds. There's no war. There's no time machines. There's no... That's right. Interesting. That's very... That's a nice, interesting way to look at that, that H.G. Mm-hmm. Wells is a better science fiction writer because his stuff hasn't happened yet. Right. Or possibly can't happen. Well, we don't know yet. Yeah, we don't know yet. <laughs> but I, have, sure. I haven't seen a man walking around with uh, his head of a fly. Not yet. Not yet. Right. You know, now I regret not reading some of the, like, I, I remember when I read The Man Who Evolved, I thought it was a great story. Mm-hmm. And um, regret uh, not following up on some of the suggestions that my father had. I didn't go to camp. My summers were sleep late then eat, then the Yankee games at that time would start at two o'clock. So that would take me from two to four. And then I would play imaginary baseball where I would hit the ball and then chase it. But I would use a beach, big beach ball so mm. I could hit it high and then still catch. After I hit it, I had time because it would float to catch it. Right. <laughs> so I would do that for an hour and then wait for my father to come home. And also many times Yankee games at that time started at eight o'clock. Yeah. So imagine him being at work in the city. Then he comes home, eats dinner, and then drives me to a Yankee game. We go to a night game. Incredible. That's that's just such an you incredible know? life. Yeah. And and then he would have to wake up early to go to work the next day. To go write Superman. <laughs> yeah, he had to go back to work. But but you know most dads would be doing that maybe on a weekend, taking their son to a baseball oh, game. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that's something else where you you. Um, you know, very fortunate. In the 50s, most of us growing up in that time period had very little idea what our dads really did. They would leave right. in the morning, put a coat and tie on, get their briefcase. They would leave and come back in dinner time. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't know my father wrote Superman. My first memory is when he came home and he gave me a box and I opened it up and it was a Superman costume. Then I would put it on and run around the house. We probably had, uh, since we're close in age, similar Superman costumes in those days. Yeah, I wore mine to school underneath my clothes. Uh, me too. I wore it all the time. Uh, and now every time I see, when I yeah. walk around or I'm in an airport, I see somebody wearing a shirt with an S, mm-hmm. I feel, you know what, I should be getting money from that. <laughs> because at that time, that was that was his job to create everything. One of the One of the... I think Jeanette Kahn was her name, mm-hmm. changed it where that if you come up with a character, you're tied into it financially. Oh. I'd be a zillionaire now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, your mom, what was your mom? She was a nurse, but never worked and became a, um, a housemaker. Mm-hmm. And also, you have to remember, she was passive. My father was aggressive. Right. So that tells you what their relationship was oh. like. He was very dominant. Right. She'd have to stay home, and, and so when he called to see if a check came from a magazine, 
she'd have to uh, answer the phone. Right. As a mother, she was great. She was my second best friend. So, you know, um, so she would take a lot of yelling and screaming. Every time my father would start yelling about something, like ashtrays, she said, oh, the neighbors are going to hear, and she'd run to shut the windows. And he'd say, he doesn't care. Right. The only people he cared about who, who, who uh, would be people who maybe were um, other writers, but for a normal person, he didn't care what they thought about him and so on. And my mother was very, um, she was a very good listener. She listened to all of his ideas and stories, uh, very supportive and uh, very um, encouraging, neurotic in her own way. But your father, in many ways, is so much larger than life. Well, listen to this thing. Right, one time we went to Puerto Rico. So my father told all the hotels that he was writing an article on tourism, you know, it'd be good PR. And as a result, mm -hmm. like any time, this was in the Paul Anka, Temptation, Supremes, right. music time frame. And they were in Puerto Rico, you know, the, the, all the hotels would have these big entertainers as a way of bringing in gamblers, much like Vegas does today. Right. So because all the hotels thought they were going to get great publicity, the, the casino shows, would always be free. We'd get ringside tables, literally the first table in front of the stage, uh, lobster, shrimp, steak, champagne, whatever you want, because it was all free. The only thing they would tell my father is he would have to tip the, um, the maitre d'. So he said, okay. So then it would be if I met a girl, uh, they said, yeah, you can bring her because it wasn't costing him anything. And then he would meet friends and bring them. So when he would invite one of, you know, somebody they met at the pool or something, my father would say, you know, I got a ringside table. We're going to see the Supremes tonight. You'll be our guest. He said, the only thing I'll ask you to do is to tip the major day. Oh, gee. So, so he would pass that on to wow. the person who was he was taking. <laughs> So very, uh, and another thing, a great way that I benefited from what he did. One of his attitudes, because he wrote a thousand one valuable things you can get free. One of the core values in our house was anybody can pay for something. The key is to get it for free. Mm. He'd say anybody can go out and uh, buy a TV set, uh, but I get it for free. I'll write an article on TV sets. So that was his whole thing Amazing. in life was getting things. He took great joy in getting things for free out of cleverness. Years later, when I started being in, going around and giving talks, you know, and staying uh, at the top hotels, and I was never paying for it. The company was always paying for it. Anytime I do a talk for Merrill Lynch, I tell my friends I'm going to another Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton. So I've gotten to travel all over the world through my business, never having to pay and staying at the greatest places in the world. And that makes me think of that, you know, anybody can pay the key is to get it for free. So you learned some really good lessons from, from, uh, from the old man too, huh? <laughs> Great lessons. Great. And you know what? Yeah. One time he wrote an article on refrigerators. So they gave him like one of these mini refrigerators. Yeah. So he would first, he would put it up in his office thinking that he would put, you know, stuff in there. So right. he wouldn't have to go downstairs to get something to eat. Right. You know what it ended up being stuffed with? 
comic, comic books books. <laughs> <laughs> for, 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 running out of space yeah. uh, i should have seen that one coming yeah that's funny so did you ever uh, uh toy with the idea of writing comic books uh never 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 enough never once appealed to you in thinking never no i should have been if, if i would have followed my two course with the upbringing i had would have been to become a very successful agent interesting and you have to remember back in the 60s if you say you wanted to do something creative people would think there was something wrong with you yeah because yeah you had to be like a doctor or lawyer or accountant exactly yeah i know that feeling you couldn't say you wanted to write um you know i would have loved to have been in the television business or the movie business because that's what i grew up in i didn't grow up in terms of you know being a student well you must have uh turned turned around that uh um Bad grades or just getting through? I did. I took a psychology course. The teacher inspired me. Yeah, no, the, um, you know, I had a, I took a psychology course. The teacher inspired me. I studied. I got the highest mark on the test. It was the first time I ever got academic reinforcement, so I became a psychology major. You know, what I want to say later before is that during the summer when I didn't go to camp, my father used to offer me money to read books. He said, I'll give you 20 bucks for every book you read. So I went to the library and I got the book Mutiny on the Bounty. And after I read 10 pages, I said, this is boring. (laughs) (laughs) And then he read it. And for the next two weeks, he said, you don't know what you're missing. Yeah, you need to finish that book. (laughs) You know, so like 10 pages, that was it. I will say that when I came home, when I came home one college, uh, um, maybe Thanksgiving or whatever. And he gave me the Godfather to read and I couldn't put it down. He said, I've never seen you read a book like this. Yeah. Well, and then he gave me, he gave me King Rat to read. How old were you? Which I loved. Did you ever see the movie? Yeah, I saw the movie. I didn't read the book though. How old were you though? I must've been in my, um, maybe early college. Okay. 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 And he and he motivated me. He says, "You're gonna like this." Yeah. He says, "It's good." It's, they 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 feed people rats. He made it like reading a horror yeah. movie to get oh, me hooked. So in. clever, so clever. Uh, but his offer of twenty dollars a book, and that could be the book that you choose. So I mean, if you went in and got Moby Dick, you could have gotten the twenty bucks for reading Moby Dick, or yeah. So, but but it would turn out as you know what I'll I'll be happy with ten, not having to read. <laughs> I didn't need $20. I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> right. And he's bringing home the real stuff you wanted to read anyway with the Superman comics. and the Exactly. You know, and I got to the point where I'd read, I'd read the Superman comics, the stories over and over. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I will say, though, that when um, I went one time, uh, when Superman sued, I think it was Captain Marvel, and... The part of the case uh, to show, you know, that super that it was a ripoff of Superman was watching Superman versus the Atom Man with Kirk Allen. Yes, it, it were like serials. Mm-hmm. So my father took me out of school, and for eight hours a day, everybody had to watch these series. All these high-powered lawyers. Louis Neiser was the lawyer. I was wow. the only person who liked it. Wow. Because I was the only kid. Yeah. Every all the lawyers are watching it for different reasons. So I do remember that as another um, 
another another really unique experience. I didn't realize a, a, a big lawsuit was going on. Uh, a lawsuit with Superman, it, it's like hand in hand. I think lawsuits started in 1940, practically. Siegel and Schuster definitely got screwed. There's no, there's no question about it. You know, it's... it's but ahead. there is a way you could look at it, that they were paid well as uh, 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 creative people. Yeah, well, here's the other way to look at it. They ended up working for my father. See, they came up with a great idea, mm -hmm. but the Superman mythology was really developed by my father. And, and, and for me, what I find very upsetting is when I see a Superman movie and it says created by Siegel and Schuster, what really should happen is underneath that, it should say and developed by Moore Weisinger because Superman would not be have evolved if it wasn't for my father. Seagull was what Dad always said was a good writer and a good emotional writer. Uh -huh. uh, but we're talking limited talent. That the that's the that's the bottom line. Most of Superman's powers, Seagull did not have. No. Seagull did not come up with the reason that why does Superman have his powers? It, it, it was like when somebody, some kid once wrote in, dear editor, when Superman um, Clark changes into Superman. Where does he put his clothes? That's where my father came up with the idea. He's got the pocket. So your dad invented the pocket, in the, the pouch in the cape. Right. That's just so good. Right. And then, and then the next question from another kid would be, why don't his clothes get wrinkled? Because Superman invented a, you know, a spray in the fortress of solitude in his lab that made it wrinkle free. How come Superman's, how come Superman's glasses when he uses his x-ray vision doesn't melt his glasses. Oh, because he got the glasses from the uh, rocket from Krypton, the Mach 10. Uh, and it, so it's super glass, so it can't be melted. One time I'm watching the Saturday night show, you know, where they're having questions. And the question became, why doesn't Superman's, um, when Superman uses his uh, X-ray vision, melt his uh, glasses? And my father said, look, the idiot's got the question wrong. It should be his heat vision. Why would x-ray vision melt it? In fact, that's a... <laughs> even have the question wrong. Right. see, that's even another trivia question, is when did it change from being the heat of his x-ray vision to actually being heat vision? Um, well, the fun. The fun. In, in simple terms, it is just the fun and imagination that that went into these and they had to keep returning these things over well, and then a big thing was the was the ll's uh-huh and how we made a litany of uh, you know of ll's from Lois lane to lana lane to lucy lane to all the things that we saw out you know two l's in a in a in a, in a story in some way the mermaid lori lamaris it's just it's 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 so much, and you could put under his name. Yeah, he, he was a master. Yeah, he was a master of gimmicks. Uh, the Bottle City of Candor, Brainiac. I mean, just the right. off the top. So of one your time, hands. yeah, he comes home and he says the problem with Brainiac is he got a letter from a computer company that had the name Brainiac mm. um, first, and they said he can't use it. So this is when my father said. Uh, well, he says the twist will be that Brainiac's really a computer. So it'll be good PR. So they liked that. Now, your dad left D.C. in 1970. Correct, which was the same year his novel came out. How was that as an ending? Was it, uh, was it 
amicable or did DC like they did with so many creators and creative people just kind of say, Nope, we turn the page. See ya. The, it, it depends who you ask. I can only tell you from my perspective, mm-hmm. it had been a, every time he wanted to quit DC, they gave him more money or more stock. So you have the golden handcuffs. Right. And he, his, he wanted to leave very much. And so for that, that's all. So from my perspective, he was, it was his decision to, to leave. I think once he made that decision, then he might've said, Oh, I'll stay on, you know, consulting or whatever. And they've said no. And, and I think he was losing interest, you know, also, I mean, again, he did it for a long, a long time. 30 years is. So he was happy. His life, I will tell you, his life became better. When he, when, when he, he left quit. DC. Right. Uh-huh. See, he knew he could see his whole point was, we'll see what Superman can do without me. I know what I can do without him. Right. He traveled more with my mother, was writing his articles, the, um, doing other stuff. And then he had a uh, heart attack and that was mm. it. Uh, relatively young. 63. There must have been about 300. There were about 300 people at his funeral. Yeah. Amazing. Some And I remember one guy was talking and I mean, you know, eulogy and I leaned over to my mother and I said, uh, daddy was here. He said, give him the hook already. <laughs> <laughs> Did he actually see the Christopher Reeve movie? Cause that came out, I think the same year he died. I have a, I, I think he went to the premieres of recollection. Yeah. I know he went to the premiere of the play. And I, and I went to the one he arranged for me to go to the one in LA. In LA. Oh no, no, you know, he didn't because he was dead. I remember my mother calling me okay. and she was the one who, who, um, arranged it. Okay. But you know, when he read the script, he said to me, bottom line, Hank, they use all my gimmicks and what special effects and what Superman was doing. Uh, it, it, that was the beautiful thing. And particularly about that first movie, there were some, I'm not a big fan. I love Marlon Brando as an actor. Uh, his work on that movie is not my favorite stuff. No, but uh, the second part, you would have thought otherwise. Yeah. Because when he goes to the fortress to get his powers back is when he ha- he sees Brando and Brando says, you know, the Kryptonese philosophy of the son becoming the man and the man becoming the son or the mm-hmm. father becoming the son, son becoming father are now happening. And when Brando says, once I have the energy, you'll never see me again. It was like, um, it was like the Don talking to Michael Corleone, right. you know, cause that was Puzo at his best. Yes. It was very emotional. So super Superman two, I thought was better than the first one. But if you don't see the first one, you don't really know who Zod is. See, they set that up in the beginning. I've often thought in my own personal little head canon that, uh, I'd like to cut about a th- quarter of the first one and about a third of the second one and mush them together for one really good movie uh that i'm not a big fan of the 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 fortress lois and clark sleeping together and all of that 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 scene around that i think it it was the worst of that time period and it led to the terrible superman returns movie they picked the worst part maybe but, you know, I think for two, because he's best, he was giving up his powers for her. I understand that. And I think they should, I wish they had worked another way around that for him to lose the powers. Well, the they didn't have, thing. my father could have. Uh, I, I, I will tell you, the part I didn't like was Otis, 
Luther's uh, pal because it uh, made it too stupid. Too stupid. Too. They used the villain as comic relief, and that to me is just a cardinal sin. Disney right. had it right. Disney always quoted and said, "If you want your heroes to be believable as really good heroes, the villains have to be equally." bad for every right. smile i want a tear for every laugh i want him to be afraid and disney did a good balance of that i agree His, Hack, hackman that was hackman's weakness he made it too slapstickish too slapstick he should have played it much straighter and that's why george reeves was was the best because he yes. played it really serious serious he played it straight and i'll give them credit no for campy with the, with the yeah. batman tv show was stupid campy uh, well, listen, doctor, I have just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. This has been um, a real treat for me, and I hope we can do it again. Well, listen, I've enjoyed um, speaking with you. We'll speak again. Do appreciate it. I would love to do it again. And next time we'll focus directly on you and your books. Yep. Uh, but this time, so much good information about your dad. And we, I think we, I get the feeling we just like touch the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Because to me, Mort Weisinger... Even with the stories you hear about him being hard and rough. Hey, I, I, I was walking through LAX and I saw somebody reading a big Superman, you know, comic and so on. So I started, you know, talking and so on and asked him questions and he knew his stuff. And I said, you know how I know? And I said, my father was more Weisinger and the kid went nuts. And he said, the big question in comics now is, is was Walt Weisinger really as big an asshole as people said they were? <laughs> and then I sat down with him for 45 minutes and gave him examples, you know, and stories. <laughs> so wonderful. Well, we'll end on that. All right. Great talking with you, Bob. Hank, I appreciate this. I'll see Me you too. online, and we will definitely do this again. Me too. Thank I you hope so we get much. To meet actually one day. Okay. That would be great. That okay. would be great. Take Thanks care. a lot. Bye bye. Wow, I really, really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. That that to me is is so much better than what I could have just done giving you facts and figures about Mort Weisinger. And I think we got kind of a good idea of the man through the eyes of his son. So once again, thanks, Hank, for coming on. And, and uh, I look forward to future conversations. Next time, part two of my spotlight on Mort Weisinger, featuring a conversation I had with comic book historian Arlen Schumer. And that's a no-holds-barred, take-no-prisoners conversation. Arlen puts it right out there and gives his opinion in great detail about both Mort as a man and his work and his contributions to Superman and the literary world. So that'll be next time on the Superman Forever radio podcast. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Superman is copyright DC Comics. Superman based on the original character appearing in Superman Magazine and Action Comics. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and developed by Mort Weisinger. Thank you.